Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we do come before you once again and ask you to be in this place with us. We trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, I told you about some wisdom that I had received from a professor about preaching, that not every good and true thing will be said on any given Sunday morning. And you pray, of course, that good things will be said, uh, but you know from the beginning that you're not going to try to say everything. But preachers will know what I'm talking about. What about those good and true things that are so good and so true that you want to say them every Sunday? Now, I'm not talking about the grace of God in Jesus Christ or the two words of The Lord, law, and gospel, those are, of course, good and true enough that they need to be said every Sunday. Indeed, the twin announcements that we are sinners and that we have a Savior along with the feast that that accompanies them, they are why we come together. I'm talking about illustrations or quotations or stories, things that are so good that they come into my mind all the time and I can't get rid of them. These are the questions that my seminary professors didn't answer. I mean, how often can you bring up Fraser before your congregation starts to get annoyed with you? Is it quarterly, monthly, or quoting, say, Martin Luther? Is there a limit? And the reason I ask is because there's this great Martin Luther quote, um, and it goes so well and goes so far in explaining this story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah that I just could not get it out of my head this week. The problem is I know that I've used this quote with you all before, and probably a lot. I was actually going to do one of those Microsoft Word searches to see just how often I'd use this quote, but then I got scared and realized that I didn't want to know. And yes, I know what you're thinking. This guy still uses Microsoft Word. I know I'm a dinosaur, but you have no idea. I'm still using Microsoft Word 2007. So here's the quote, right off the top, because I can't help myself, and because we're going to build the whole sermon around this quote this morning. Martin Luther, in the context of his Heidelberg Disputation, Thesis 28. So as a historical aside, before you think to yourself, what on earth is he talking about? The Heidelberg Disputation was something that Luther wrote to defend the, quote, new theology that he was credited with or accused of, depending on your perspective, coming up with. Now, we know, as he did, that it was not new, that it was actually just the truth of biblical Christianity, the good news about Jesus Christ, and the proper distinction between the law, what the Lord requires of us, and the gospel, what the Lord gives us for free in Jesus Christ. But Luther was asked to explain this. And so he came up with a bunch of theses, just like he had so famously done with the 95, that he presented 
in the lecture hall of the Augustinian order in Heidelberg, a room which I have to imagine was similar in vibe to the room in which we find ourselves this morning. That was hilarious. I can't believe. No, not even a titter. Nothing. No chuckle. I'm going to have to add that in in post. Luther made this presentation, the Heidelberg Disputation, April 26, 1518. Here is thesis 28, his final thesis, his grand conclusion. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Has there ever been better news, more succinctly put, than that? The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. In other words, God is not desperately looking around trying to find someone who qualifies for or deserves his love. No. Instead, God, on account of Jesus Christ, loves a sinner and thereby makes the sinner lovely. One more time. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Now, I'd be tempted to just say amen at this point and sit down, acknowledging my inability to improve on Luther's sentence or the good news that it announces, but there's a problem. We have such a hard time believing that this could possibly be true. It sounds just too good. We want proof. And this, again, is why we come together week by week, so that we can remind each other that this good news that sounds too good to be true is actually true. And so we prove it by the scriptures every week. That's what we do here. So for this week's proof, I'm going to give you an illustration, and then we're going to turn to the Bible itself. And both stories, the illustration I'm going to share with you and this story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, are going to be about status. That's going to be our theme this morning, status. There's an episode of the TV show Community, one of my favorites, not on the level of Frasier, of course. Let's not kid ourselves. But up there, there's an episode in which a new smartphone app is introduced onto the community college campus. And this app allows the students, really everybody on the campus, to rate the people on the campus with a rating of one to five stars. Their friends, their teachers, everyone. You can rate anything and everyone. So over time, the people develop a cumulative rating. So-and-so is a two. So-and-so is a five. And so on. And the kicker is... The higher your rating is, the more value your ratings of others get. So just a week after this app is introduced onto the campus, the school has turned into a post-apocalyptic hellscape with a caste system in place more rigorous than anything in India. The fours, for instance, wear gray clothes so as not to call attention to themselves for fear of getting reduced to a three. The fives live in the lap of luxury, being served food and futuristic drinks by the twos. And the ones, well, the ones are pretty much untouchable, relegated to the outlands. 
status has become everything. Everyone is ranked and everyone behaves according to their rank. And the only way to move up is to get close to, be seen with, and curry favor with the people ranked higher than you. Now, as silly as that sounds, and it's played for huge laughs in the show, this is actually a terrifyingly accurate picture of how people are and how the world actually works. Because we all want to be a five, don't we? We do anything. We organize our lives around trying to achieve five-like status. We get the job. We join the fraternity. We run in the circles that will look good to other people, that will make us look good to other people. Haven't you ever wanted to be able to tell someone that your assistant will be in touch? This is one of my dreams. Or that you couldn't make that meeting because you'll be in Dubai that weekend. Or casually mention the celebrity phone number that you have. We want these things because we want the status they afford. We want people, when they think of us, to be impressed. And Jacob, from our reading in Genesis this morning, is exactly the same way. He wants to be impressive And he finds himself in a situation where he is able to choose a wife, a beautiful one or an ugly one. Is it any wonder that he chooses the beauty? Of course he does. It will give him status. It will make him impressive. This is the no-brainer human choice. Now, we drop right into the middle of Jacob's story here. There's a lot that came before, and there is a lot that's still to come. But remember, preaching 101... You can't say everything. In fact, I'm not even going to mention Jacob's polygamy here. That's a whole Bible study that we could do. Suffice to say that polygamy in the scripture is just facts on the ground. The Bible does not condone or approve of the practice. But like I said, that's a whole Bible study, preaching 101. We're not going to say everything this morning. This little vignette stands on its own. Jacob is the nephew of a man named Laban and ends up staying long-term in his home. And after a month, Laban tells Jacob that if he's going to stay, he deserves some kind of pay for the service that he'll render helping out around the house. And he asks Jacob, what shall your wages be? Now Jacob has met Laban's two daughters, and he's got his eye on one of them. Rachel, Laban's younger daughter, is an acknowledged beauty, while the elder daughter, Leah, is, well... What we'd say today is that she's got a great personality. The Bible describes her in the translation that we read from this morning, the New Revised Standard, as having lovely eyes, but that's not quite right. At the beginning of the sermon, I read you the English Standard Version, which better translates that word that the NRSV uses as lovely to be weak. That's a better translation. In fact, that's what the updated New Revised Standard uses. So the more accurate translation here is that Leah has weak eyes. This hits a little different, doesn't it? What's Rachel like? Oh, she's graceful and beautiful. And Leah? Well, she's got weak eyes. I even heard one scholar say once that this more, even this more accurate translation doesn't quite get the true meaning across. And that what's going on here is actually much worse, that this is a euphemism. That this means something like, She's so ugly, she'll make your eyes weak. She's 
that difficult to look at. But whatever specific thing is happening with the language here, the Bible is making no bones about the difference between Leah and Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob, we read, loved Rachel. Doesn't get much clearer than that. And so Jacob agrees to work for Laban for seven years in exchange for the right to marry Rachel. But Laban tricks Jacob in a move that's more one life to live or as the world turns than community. On the wedding night, seven years later, when Jacob is probably too drunk to notice, Laban sends older and uglier daughter Leah into the wedding tent in Rachel's place. And this results in my favorite bit of punctuation in the whole Bible. Genesis 29 Verse 25, when morning came, it was Leah, <laughs> exclamation point, like record scratch and Scooby-Doo noise, whoop, surprise, you're married to the wrong sister. And so then Jacob has to work seven more years to get Rachel, the woman that he actually wants. So now Jacob's married to both of them, but he is not an equal opportunity lover. Jacob loves beauty more than ugly, because who wouldn't? It gives him status. Jacob wants to be a five. He's been concerned with status since he grabbed onto Esau's heel in utero. He wants to be a five, and he thinks that Rachel can help him get there. He's going to be the guy with the beautiful wife. And we would all choose similarly. But now the good news, not the God of the Bible. Our God does not choose this way. While Jacob chooses Rachel, God chooses Leah. If we were to read a little further on in the story, we'd come to verses 31 and 32. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Now Rachel is described here as barren. Even though years later the Lord does bless her with children too, she's described in this way because the Bible is making this dichotomy clear. Rachel, the beautiful one chosen by Jacob, is not chosen by God. For now she is barren. Only Leah, the ugly one, not really wanted by Jacob, is chosen by God and can have children. And not only can Leah have children, we'll come to find out that she is the mother through her son Judah of the line by which Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, is born. Jacob chose Rachel, but God chose Leah. Jacob chooses beauty over ugly. He thinks it will show everyone how successful he is, how much status he has. God chooses ugly over beauty. It shows everyone how gracious he is, how much mercy he has. Remember, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Notice here that love that God's love 
is working in what seems to us to be a backwards way. We assume that God will be like Jacob, choosing the beautiful over the ugly, righteous people over sinners. And we assume that because we're like Jacob. That's how we choose. Almost everything we do in our lives is structured in such a way as to build ourselves up, to gain status, to get us chosen to be a five. And to be a five, we think we have to be Rachel. To be picked, we have to be the beautiful one. We want to impress those around us so we align ourselves with the impressive We want to be beautiful, so we surround ourselves with the beautiful. We want to seem young and vibrant, so we surround ourselves with the young and vibrant. We want to be well-liked and popular, so we align ourselves with whatever society is in favor of at the moment. We sit at the cool table at lunch. You can see this in young people's hairstyles. I have young people in my home now, so this is something that I think about a lot. Whatever haircut the cool kid gets... Pretty soon, everybody's got that haircut. We are all like Jacob. We choose the popular over the unpopular, the beautiful over the ugly, and we think that this striving, this putting ourselves next to the beautiful people, the powerful people, will help us be beautiful and powerful too. But it isn't. Instead, it's killing us. And now here it's time, once again, for my patented Hugh Hefner principle. A principle which I really think I truly did invent. It's too bad it'll never catch on, uh, connected as it is to a disgusting and lecherous man. But here's the principle. Did having young, sexy girlfriends make 80-year-old Hugh Hefner seem young and sexy? Of course not. His beautiful girlfriends made him seem old and decrepit, like the Crypt Keeper, like he was already dead. And this is a universal principle. Don't you have a handsome person in your life who makes you feel ugly? Or a smart person in your life who makes you feel stupid? Or a church in your life that has a beautiful... Never mind. (laughs) This principle shows us what's actually going on, that our striving always brings us up short, that our efforts to be beautiful always simply show us how ugly we are, that our efforts to be strong just reveal our weakness, that our efforts to be young ultimately only remind us that we're going to die, that our efforts to save ourselves reveal all the more our need for a Savior. We are in desperate need of good news, we Leah's. You and I. And we have it. The good news is that God chose Leah. God chooses the fools of this world, the failures, the weak, the ugly, the dead. God chooses Leah. Everything in our lives says, be Rachel or you won't get picked. We need a savior from that life because that life is killing us. We need a God who does not make decisions like Jacob, and we have one. God chose what is foolish in the world, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not 
to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Christ, God aligns himself with Leah, with the ugly, the powerless, the outcast, but a certain kind of outcast, the sinner, the unworthy. Our God sends his son into the world, not for righteous people, but for unrighteous people. He chooses the weak things of this world to shame the wise. He comes to the unloving, the selfish, the unforgiving. Jesus' rescue mission is to the Leahs of the world, to the people who, by all accounts, are so ugly that no one would ever choose them. In other words, Christ's mission is to you and to me. We are Leah. We are sure that no one would choose us if they really knew us, if they really saw the ugliness inside. But there is good news for you today. God, almighty God, chose you. That doesn't make you Rachel. It makes you chosen in Christ. So admit your ugliness, internal though it may be, and accept his love. Confess your sin, repent, and believe that the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. God isn't desperately seeking someone good on whom he can pour out his love. Instead, because of Jesus Christ and the free gift of his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, you are the chosen of the Lord. Made a good and faithful servant. Made a beloved child. Made a blameless son or daughter of Almighty God. This God in Christ has chosen you today and every day. And in so doing, in so choosing, has made you pleasing to him on account of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, sinners like you and me. Amen.